Interdisciplinary, the podcast from Healed Well, where we say the loud things loud and the quiet things loud and all the things loud. So welcome. Today, we have a very special guest that I am so excited for you guys to get to hear from. Um, but first, as always, a pun. You guys ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. I made a belt out of watches. It was a waste of time. <laughs> thank you thank you the classic yeah thank you well i'm joined today by a lot of the heal well brain trust which is really exciting i have uh corey and laura and cal with me today but most excitingly uh we have esther dupont Verstegen uh with us and uh, Esther just made a very polite nod when I butchered her last name. So apologies all around to the Dutch <laughs> in general and Esther specifically. Um, so uh, let's just dive right in. Hi, Esther. Hey, how are all of you doing? Excited? We are good. good. We're so excited. excited. Yeah. So tell us, tell us, tell us about you. Tell us what you do do. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, if you had Tim Butterfield here, who is my partner in crime, he would dive right into your what do you do do. So, um, but anyway, so I am a, um, a physiologist by training. Uh, I do research in the field of skeletal muscle atrophy. I'm really interested in why elderly in particular don't recover muscle function and overall function uh, as well as younger individuals do. And I really would like to find interventions that help with that recovery from, from a period of disuse, quite often bed rest uh, in the elderly. So that's what I'm, I'm, that's my kind of my overall broad goal of what my research uh, should do. Cool. And so talk to us about what, what does that look like? What does your research look like? What's a, you know, what's a day for you? What a day is for me is sitting behind a computer trying to get money to, uh, <laughs> to actually do Oh, that's like a day for us. That's, that's right. What day looks like. I think it's everybody's day these days, isn't it? Um, but no, seriously, what 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 I what I do try to do is to try to get grant funding to to research the things that I that I want to research, and that is what those interventions are. And so I have done, um, my early, early work was on humans. I've done most of my work uh, has been animal research, but I am getting back into human research quite a bit right now with the massage work that I've been doing. And also I have a collaboration with a, um, a um, faculty member here. His name is Dr. Kirby Mayer, and he's very interested in recovery from a period of disuse after an ICU stay. So there are a lot of people who stay in the ICU for two days, two months. And the recovery from that is so hard. And part of it is because it's really hard to recover your muscle function. And so we are very interested in doing that. And so we have animal work going on where we have uh, animals that are undergoing atrophy and try to recover from that. And then, but we also have uh, human research ongoing in a post-ICU clinic where we um, look at recovery from all of ICU stay, but also from the, the muscle, how it's affected and how it's affected by the ICU stay and the recovery from that. Cool. 
So, so Esther, what you presented, because we pounced on you when um, many of the Healwell team met you at the um, International Massage Therapy Research Conference. It was just, um, seems like years ago, but I think was maybe a month and a half ago, something like that's that. Such an um, exciting and, and vibrant. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was super fun. And we, of course, um, we set a dare for you because um, we all jokingly in our off hours decided that you rub rats' asses, which of course you don't. But I'm really curious about um, if you will share with our listeners some of uh, what you shared in your presentation in terms of what you've noticed in, in your manual manipulation of the muscles of these research rodents, what is effective, what is not effective. And I think my absolute favorite part of your whole presentation was when you were like, and we don't know why this happened. And it wasn't like, there was no apologetic, like, ah, geez, you know, it's like, this is so exciting. We have no idea why this happened. Um, so which is, if you which could is, talk a little yeah. bit. Yeah, thanks for that question. So, so uh, that is the exciting part about, for me, about doing research is we have no idea why some of these things happen and which is what I want to find out so we can do it better. And I think that's what all of us are in for, right? That's why we, that's why we do what we do. We want to do things better. We want to make people better. And so quite often when we understand things better, we can do things better. So um, what I shared at that meeting is uh, really a, a lot of the work we've been doing over the last five, six, seven years. And um, um, that, that with massage, we can change the immuno, immune response of the muscle, which is something I think for most massage therapists will not be a surprise. You can change things in the muscle that respond to the immune system. And so that's one of the things we have shown in, in rats that you can indeed, depending on the force that you put upon the muscle, you can change uh, macrophage infiltration, uh, neutrophils not as much, but mainly macrophage infiltration. And maybe also the macrophages that are there, how they respond to, uh, to the massage. So we, we haven't it, that's another whole area of research that we that that is kind of ripe for us to go into that we just haven't gone into yet in a lot of detail. Uh, we have one paper, hopefully that's going out in the next six months or so, where we dive into it a little bit deeper. But but a lot of the the data that I showed was on fibroblasts, um, fibroadipogenic precursor cells, but fibroblasts for this discussion is probably the word that, that is fine. Um, and what, what they do a lot is, is ch change co the connective tissue. So the exocellular matrix and the connective tissue. And again, I think for massage therapists, that's an incredibly important part of a muscle or of any tissue of skin of anything that, that you are trying to um, affect with the manual therapy. And what we showed is that and the aged rats that we gave the massage, and indeed it wasn't asses we were massaging, we were massaging a gastrocnemius muscle and any underlying tissues and tissues between the muscle and so to skin, for example, we have no idea yet what we're doing to skin. We haven't really gone into that, but incredibly important too for edema and a lot of other things. But anyway, so um, when, we, when we did this in younger and older animals, we showed that we could actually change the gene expression profile. So all the genes that are expressed within um, the fibroblast in that muscle, we could change that in the old animal 
to a more youth-like um, phenotype. So they actually looked more like how the, not exactly the same, but more like how the, the cells in a young animal respond to massage after recovery from atrophy than the old did. And so that was really exciting to us because that meant that we really made a difference and hopefully what we follow up, what we want to follow up on is how do we now use that to, um, for example, do we need to uh, massage for a longer period of time so we actually change the extracellular matrix so it becomes more beneficial and it becomes more open to having remodeling? Because in older individuals, that's really what you want. You want to remodel the extracellular matrix so that you can lay down good collagen instead of the, the collagen that is uh, that is there that you can't change anymore because it's it is um has become what is the word too old is not a good word but um but not not changeable anymore i guess there's a word that escapes me that, that we i just wrote a brand and we put it in there so um so, do you i hope that know? makes sense yeah this is so exciting. My question is, when you talk about the time, do do you know, did you even get a chance to look at, like, are these lasting effects? Is this just immediately post-massage? What are you seeing in terms of, like, longevity? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So we, we have looked at um, the change. Let me, let me start first. The changes that we saw... I had a really long conversation with my postdoc and my graduate student about this. And we actually had some beers writing on it. And I think that's the only bet I've ever won. But, uh, but anyway, so, so what, what we did is we looked at the animals had gotten four bouts of massage, 30 minutes every other day, starting at the day they, they started recovering. And um, I told the postdoc and the student, I said, we have to do this about four to five hours after that last bite of massage. Because if we do it later, then we don't see the changes anymore that are induced by the bite of massage. But their point was, and it's a really good point, and it goes exactly back to the question you're asking. Their point was, yeah, but we need to see those changes 24 hours later because otherwise, what does it matter, right? And that is, the, I, you know, we had long discussions about this. And indeed, what does it matter when it changes within two or three hours if two days later we don't see anything anymore? And we decided to go with four to six hours. I think it was four hours we decided on because then at least we have a starting point. That we can that we can go from we can um, at least start to say okay these are the processes that we change most likely with every bout of massage right because we could have also done it after only one bout of massage what does that do we don't know we we have we have one paper that where we looked at that and we we see quite a few changes so one bout of massage does quite a bit and all of you know that if everybody who's a massage therapist knows that one body massage does a lot of things. Is, does that continue? 
that is what we don't know. And so one of the things that I would like to do in the next grant that I just submitted is look at the longer term effects. So can you do it preventative and therapeutically? Because both would be good, right? Can you prevent what is happening by massaging during that period of atrophy and then massaging them afterwards and then looking six weeks later? At, or can we therapeutically treat so you let the atrophy happen and then you massage to see if you can treat what has happened? And so those, I think, are for any massage therapist, very important questions, because it, it depends on when you're going to do the manual application. And so, yeah, we have looked at that and we have a couple of papers. Dr. Butterfield did some work before this too, and that mainly in response to, um, to exercise is when is massage best mm -hmm. to when you've exercised and you want to change some of the inflammatory responses that occur. And they found that it was as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And we think that's because you, you then change the inflammatory response that is set into motion. Sure, sure. So I don't know if that completely answered your question, but. Um, yeah, no, I, I, that's so interesting. And so I assume as a physiologist, you also have looked at, and maybe not specifically like this, I'm curious about, have you seen a difference between the manual therapies like massage therapy and simply like something more like what a physical therapist would do, like stretching or exercises that, that are, are either passive or active. Do you see yeah, so that we, same kind of gene expression change? Yeah, no, we have not done that. And, okay. but if you think about it, um, so exercise physiology, so physical therapists, I wouldn't necessarily equate with giving exercise and doing stretches because they do so much more than that. But, um, but an exercise physiologist would, would do exercise. So there, there's a lot of literature already out there on the effect of exercise. And so to me, the, the biggest difference with exercise and uh, massage is that exercise has a huge metabolic component besides the just mechanical component. Not saying that massage therapy would not have also a metabolic component, but a lot less. And so one of the reasons we got into looking at massage is to split those two components, to not look at, at okay, what happens me uh, uh, metabolically because there's so many changes going on depending on whether you do resistance exercise or endurance exercise, what the, the metabolic changes are, they are probably very different than just the mechanical changes. And I, and I am more interested in looking at interventions that you could do in patients that could not do exercise, that because of trauma, because of surgeries, because of immobility and uh, during bed rest, because they're in an ICU and hooked up to a lot of equipment. What can you do for those people who cannot exercise? And so I think that um, that's the reason we looked at this and, and we have not compared it directly. I, I do think that exercise specifically, uh, specifically resistance exercise will is more beneficial for atrophy because it does have that metabolic component too. But what we're going after right now more is what you change in the exercise matrix that, um, 
that can change. And we have not compared that. That's an interesting one to stretching. Um, so that 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 might be a better um, comparison than resistance exercise or um, and well, exercise. And I'm curious, Esther, maybe I maybe I want to remember that you said this, but I feel like you and I talked about that you found that um, deeper pressure was not more beneficial. Yes, that's a that that's a, a good point. So um now the pressures we use, yeah, woo, good memory. Yay. <laughs> um, the the pressures we use are actually quite high already. Um but, and it would probably be comparable to what a lot of massage therapists would do after an, a bout of exercise where people are going to experience a delayed onset muscle soreness. I think it's more comparable to that. But what we did is we thought, well, since older animals and older humans have a stiffer exercise matrix, maybe we have to push harder. Seemed logical to us, right? So what we what we did is we then indeed um, scaled it. We first measured the stiffness and then scaled our load to match that increase in stiffness in the age. So, you know, to give numbers, instead of 4.5, we did 7.6. Numbers really don't matter, but that's what it was. And so what we then saw is that when we did that in the aged animals, we actually caused damage. So when we gave too high of a load to the aged animals, we caused damage. And we did not see an increase in protein synthesis, for example, some anabolic measure and, and muscle size. What to me, that so that wasn't that surprising if I think about it now, you know, high science 2020. But, um, but what, one of the things that I found surprising is that when we did the same load now in the younger animals, so that higher load in the younger animals, we actually did not see that anabolic effect anymore that we saw with the lower load. So we now lost the beneficial effect. And, and that tells us that there is definitely a Goldilocks effect, right? There's that you have somewhere you're promoting something that is very beneficial at a sweet spot. And it will take a lot of research to find out what that sweet spot is for every outcome, whether you look at atrophy, whether you look at changes in exercise matrix or in, in anything related to tendons or um, scars, anything like that or whether that's related to anxiety, pain, depression. I mean, all of those things we really don't know, which is something I really learned from the meeting, um, that, that we don't know dose effects and whether that's dose effects coming back, Carrie, to your question, whether something lasts long-term and how many times you would have to do it or doses as in what the load is that we, we need to, um, to look at. And so there's, a lot of research that still needs to be done uh, to make sure we're all in that Goldilocks uh, point when we do what we do. And to give a little bit, um, I, I wanna give a shout out to, to uh, Jill Cole, who's my graduate student. And uh, she had a very nice poster at that meeting and at, at the um, 
there was another meeting later, but let's let's just talk about yeah, so where yeah, she yeah. also where she showed that depending on the the load that you put on um a person, their their either pain and anxiety level changes too. So whether you use a pressure scale of one or two. And that and that I think is important for everybody to also realize. So that it's not just the touch. It depends on what kind of touch and and how deep that touch is. And I think that had, probably has a lot of physiology behind it um, that we just don't know about. But I'm a physiologist, so I'm going for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because we we actually just came from uh, UK and um, hanging out with Joe Cole and a bunch of folks doing hospital-based massage. And, you know, we always have the conversation about safe is not always accurate. And so we hear, okay, well, if the pressure is quote too deep, we do damage. So massage therapists say, well, then we're just going to work lightly. And it's like, well, so lightly is very subjective, first of all, but also then we run the risk of under treating, which is certainly better than over treating, but it's not correct. And so how do we get into that range? Like you said, that Goldilocks. And then of course, then I, I find my brain going, oh, maybe we do need a machine because like each of us is going to do a different level too, you know, and how do we train therapists to be that specific, especially when part of how we decide what our pressure is relates to the integrity of the tissue. And so if I'm massaging a marathon runner versus an 80 year old person who's been in a hospital bed for 60 days, my two is going to be different. And yeah, I think it, it leaves Absolutely. a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah, we, I've talked a lot to one of the physical therapists here who's a um, lymphedema specialist. And, um, you know, she was like, well, yeah, how we get trained is you have to push the force of a nickel. And you go, okay, first of all, if you go international, nobody would know what a nickel is, right? So <laughs> that's kind of, you know put a little bit more of a scientific term on that. But the other thing is we measured, we then measured for uh, lymphedema specialists. We let them come into the lab and we had a force plate and we said, okay, on that force plate, do what you would do on a patient with lymphedema and let's see how good we're doing between four people. And we were not doing very well. Now, of course, <laughs> force plate is different than human tissue. and But it was what we did. We kind of took the average of that and then put actually use that for our machine that we then put on our rads. And, and uh, because we then took um, some skin because we wanted to look at, at more um, manual lymphatic drainage techniques and, uh, and see how it would change lymph flow and um, lymph angiogenesis in the skin. And we didn't, we had one or two posters and we didn't, we never got funded for it. So we, that kind of stopped that, but we, you know, we did some of those measurements and it was really, really kind of cool to see how different that was. And so we, we are developing a human massager that could do this, but as you all know, it's not just the force. Um, and so it, it is that human touch too, that will make a difference for, depending on outcomes, the outcomes we're looking at 
maybe not the outcomes that other people would be looking for, probably. And I know we talked about, actually on Tuesday, we talked about uh, what kind of control do we use, right? We always use a non-massaged animal that has undergone exactly the same except massage. That's much easier than do it in a, doing it in a human who knows that they're either being treated or not, and who, who knows what kind of treatment they're getting, and, um, and they're getting attention. Um, so that attention control is so important. So, yeah. Esther, I'm really curious about how you ended up studying atrophy. Did, was there something that interested you about it or was it a list and you went eeny, meeny, miny, mo? You want to hear the short story or the long story? <laughs> Up to you. <laughs> I, I, I've given a talk. A long one. Well, they asked me to say, well, can, you, can you give a talk to the physical therapy students about how you got into research and how you got into it? And I was like, hey, yeah, sure, I can do that. So I talked for 50 minutes about the serendipity of my research path. So there's a lot of serendipity and, you know, and in anything we do research-wise, I think. Um, so I it was a pretty high level sport person, which a lot of people who went to physical therapy were people who did sports, got injured a lot. Um, I played a sport that was very injury prone. And so I was at a physical therapist's office a lot. And so I was very interested in anything related to recovery from an injury. And when I then, um, I was actually uh, admitted to physical therapy school, but I decided not to go and decided to go into research instead. And so I studied movement sciences and I studied rehabilitation sciences within that. And when I visited an, a rehabilitation center, I was I was like, I this is where I want to make a difference. It was really when I went to a, a an inpatient rehabilitation center where there were a lot of patients after stroke, patients after spinal cord injury. Like, wow, I don't care anymore that I can, you know, rub and run up and down a field anymore. I now care about wow, these people are so injured and so I'm not going to say sick but they they need recovery and so that's how I got into atrophy because the muscle atrophy that people undergo when they are on that rest for a long time is very severe that's a short story the long story may be good for when you guys come to the University of Kentucky again and you know <laughs> have another visit and hear the long excellent story. absolutely <laughs> I have so many questions about just, I, I'm curious uh, if you're interested in talking a little bit about, I think one of the things that I found so interesting in our opportunities to talk at Imtrek and then just recently are that uh, your perspective on research, because I, I think this is a thing that uh, massage therapists certainly, and probably most people, even researchers um, have what I would call sort of a, a skewed or I mean, unhealthy perspective on like what we're doing when we do research. And I feel like you're set, you're not setting out to prove anything in the way that you are, you know, doing your research. And I, and I don't, I think that's somewhat unique. I think there's a real sort of like agenda. Um, when people go into research, they say, I want to show that this happens. And in our conversations, I've been really impressed by you being like, I mean, I think this might be a thing. And this part of the body or this process is very interesting to me, but when you see um, 
research that's being done or when you're going into your own lab and working with the folks you work with, um, if you could say more just about like when you have an idea for, you know, when you're writing to get that money we talked about, um, you know, how do you, um, how are you envisioning what you're setting out to do? And, and do you have a similar, do you feel like the folks on your team have a similar perspective? Yeah. Um, so there's a really short answer to this. And that is, I'm so old and have been in research for so long that I've learned that you can never prove anything. <laughs> That's the short answer. Um, yeah. But I do think that uh, setting out to prove something is, first of all, really, really hard. And it's, and it's not very productive. Um, now, of course, when you write a grant, in general, you have to have some kind of hypothesis that says, I think I will see this, right? Or you have to have really good reasons to say, I think I will see this. I think from a, from a young age, early in my career, and the reason I went into research is more to find out how certain things work, not to show that something works in a certain way. It's more, how does this work? Then this works like this. And so it, that may not make sense. So I, I'll give you an example. We, um, so there's a, there was a huge dogma in our field that muscle stem cells are required for hypertrophy, right? People said you have to have muscle stem cells to hypertrophy, okay? We had four people in the room and all four of us had a different hypothesis. So we came at it from four different sides and said, okay, you know, why do we think this is the case? Why do people say this? And there's a lot of different reasons why people would say that. And, and of course, we usually try to stick with facts. We usually try to stick with what's been published already, what, what is out there in the literature, with what, what we know is, um, has been shown. And it was so refreshing to have four different people with four different hypotheses, because whatever we found, would be fine, right? Because whatever we found would move the field forward. It would say, okay, I was wrong, so we'll go that direction. No, I was wrong, so we'll go that direction. Of course, nothing was ever that simple. We were all a little bit right, but but some of us were more right than others. Um, but it but it I think it it is very refreshing when you can sit in a room with people and say, okay, this is dogma. How are we going to say whether that dogma is indeed good to keep or whether we should, whether we should say, how are we going to find out whether that indeed is true or not? Of course, to say something is true is always hard to say, but, but, but whether we can show whether part of it is true and part of it's not. And, and so it's, it's um, I think it's a lot more fun to do it that way. Part of Partly because you always move forward when you when you when you are not wedded to that is right or that is wrong, and you just learn so much more when you do it that way. Um, I don't know. So it, uh, clinical trials are tough, right? When you think about it this way, because in a clinical trial, 
you have to show whether, let's use COVID, a vaccine is um, prevents severe disease or not. So, so when you do large clinical trials, it's, it's sometimes really hard to not have these views of, we have to have a hypothesis, or we have to show that something is working or is not working. But even there, it's like, okay, it's, you know, 90% effective. It's not 100%, so what is the other 10% doing? So you always, you always have something to go into. Um, and then right now, what, what, and this has nothing to do with atrophy, but what interests me the most about the whole COVID thing is who are the people who never got sick? And, you know, what can we learn from them? So there are all these things that you can keep on, that they can keep on going. And that's, I think, true for all research and for our research in massage in particular, because there aren't that many papers that are already addressing some of the dogma that's in the field. Um, see, I'm so glad that the dogma about not massaging patients with cancer is finally getting out there, right? That that we that we know we can. We're not doing, and but there again, some of the things that we found is that when we uh, massage. Uh, the rats, and we're trying to see if it's true for the humans also, we do get an increase in, in stem cells, which means there's an increase in proliferation. And that may make some people very uncomfortable because an increase in proliferation is not a good thing in cancer. So, but we just have to find out why that's the case. Wait, are you saying that it's multifaceted and complicated? Nuanced? <laughs> Is that what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that leads me to, I have two questions. One I think is probably pretty simple. And then the other one is completely unrelated and maybe more complicated. The first is how, how close are rats and humans? Like if we show a thing in rats, what's our likelihood that we're going to see the same thing in, in human models? And then related to sort of this idea of like, oh, that's not what we thought we were going to find. And um, Corey and I uh, wrote an article a couple of months ago for ABMP magazine about, we were commenting actually on an article that was written in Nature magazine about the four horsemen of irrepro irreproducibility and sort of some of the, the real, the fundamental problems with the way research happens in this country. And one of them is that we don't publish null hypotheses mm -hmm. and that if if it didn't work, nobody knows that you tried it and it didn't work because no one will pay you to publish a paper that says we didn't show what we thought we were going to show. And so, so rats and humans, and then I'm curious what you think about the value of publishing when it doesn't, doesn't show what we thought it was going to show. Yeah. Um, so rats and humans, it, a lot of, the answer of course is always, it depends, right? <laughs> isn't that the answer to everything? Yeah. Um, but it does depend on what questions you're asking, what um, um, uh, organ you're looking into, what system you're looking into. Um, rats are actually closer to humans than mice are, and there's a lot more research done in mice. Um, for muscle, so the immune system in rats is somewhat closer than, than, than mice is, but in some aspects it is, in some aspects it isn't. 
So I think it depends very much on the question you're asking, whether a rat is a good model for a human or not. I, I think that there are maybe too many studies done in mice because they're uh, genetically the, the easiest manipulatable. And that's why there's so many studies in mice. Um, whether that's the right reason or not, it's questionable because there are probably studies that need to be done on other animal models. We are, for example, looking at a sheep model for ICU related recovery, but I don't know if that's gonna work. Um, and that's, it's much, much harder to do the larger the animal for a, a number of reasons. Um, so, I mean, ethical questions, of course, come into play here. Um, and um, so I, I do think that for what we are looking at, the rat is not a bad model. Um, it's the reason we put it into humans is we want, we want to see whether what happens in rats happens also in humans. And, and so I think translating back and forth between the two model systems and I collaborate with a physician who always says, whatever we can do in humans, we shouldn't do in, in animals. Right. If there's something we can do, he does a lot of bad biopsies and muscle biopsies. And if we can do them in humans and ethically and safely, then we there's no reason to do them in animals. And I completely agree with that. So I, I think it depends a lot on the question on um, the tissue you're looking at and um, and what, what you're doing. So the intervention. Um, going back to you know the issue of reproducibility, and I and I. Yes, not publishing negative data is a problem. Now, we have published somewhat negative data. <laughs> so the paper I was just talking about, um, that where we um, had, because we essentially had negative results, that whether you had satellite cells or not, so muscle stem cells, did not make a difference. So for us, that was kind of a negative result. She didn't need them. It was kind of like nothing changes. We're actually still publishing those data. We're still, I have a paper that I have on my left screen here where we knocked out stem cells. So these animals don't have muscle stem cells and we're not seeing a difference at all. And so we're still publishing that. So I think if you spin it in the right way, you can still publish it. But a lot of times you're absolutely correct. It is very hard to get published. Um, or it ends up in journals that people don't look at or don't want to look at. Uh, and so um, there are some journals that publish negative results, but not very many. You're absolutely right. And that's why it is very good that the um, NIH is now mandating everybody who has a clinical trial to submit a um, clinical trial protocol with primary outcomes ahead of doing the clinical trial. So you have to submit everything that you said you were going to do, expected outcomes, so that when you do the research, you can actually check back to say, this is what we did and it had a negative outcome, and then it's easier to publish. So they're thinking about doing that for animal work also. It will be a huge administrative burden um, I'm not 100% sure it would be worth the burden. Um, but if it's only for intervention studies, because right, right now it's only for intervention studies in humans for what's called a clinical trial, 
then maybe it maybe it is worth it. I don't know. We we do. You asked me right when we started what I do a lot on a daily basis or what my day looks like. I do a lot of administrative work that has very little to do with the actual science. So, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing because a lot of the administrative work is there for reasons that are good reasons. It just is, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Well, and I think that points to, I don't know if this is a question or just an observation, but you know, in the, the meeting you referenced earlier where there were a bunch of us on a call on Tuesday talking about putting together a new research project, you know, from the moment of like this meeting where we're talking about what do we want to research and how do we want to do it, we're easily five years from like completing that study, publishing it. And then when you think about the the length of time it takes from publication to working into practice, like, you know, everything we do feels like we're planting seeds for trees we'll never sit under. And, and that there's a there's sort of a thanklessness to research. Luckily, we're all surrounded by nerds who are excited by the research itself. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not so much about the final product, but it really, I feel like that old movie, The Money Pit, where they say six weeks or two weeks or whatever it is. And every time you ask when something's gonna be done, it's two weeks. I feel like we've been telling people that this paper we've been working on, it's gonna get submitted the end of this month, like since January. And I think maybe in August we'll, we'll submit it. And it just takes, forever it takes so and if you know what the time is that they say when you find something in a laboratory until it becomes practice anybody 20 seven, years they say 17 years 17 yeah, yeah. it's it wow. kind of the average time people say so which is one of the reasons again the nih has implemented implementation science so or implemented having people pay more attention to implementation science. So um, a graduate student of mine who just graduated was really interested in uh, physical activity in school aged children. And um, we all know they don't get enough physical activity. So how, how can we improve that? Well, we could improve it if we had more physical activity in schools, okay? How do we implement that? So her dissertation was more about how do we implement physical activity, anything, into you know clinical practice or uh, into you know, anything that has to do with society. And so there is a large growing field right now in the implementation science to try to get that time period a lot closer to where we want it to be. And right now the NIH is requesting if you write clinical trials to have an implementation path. So how are you going to make sure that what you're doing can get to the clinic faster? Um, uh, that's a huge undertaking, but they're putting a lot of money towards it, which is, I think, a wonderful thing that they're doing. So I was going to say, so kind of following up what you were talking about before, like what your day looks like, and maybe people didn't realize that you do a lot of admin work. So what what is it that you would like people to know who are not involved in research? What would you like them to know that, that doing research, this is what it involves? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that um, I, I what I would like for people to know is that we really care about doing ethical research, doing it right for 
animals, doing it right for people. And that we that there are lots and lots of systems in place to make sure that happens. And that that we um and also to make sure that what comes out of research and that is peer-reviewed still may have flaws, but but has meaning and should not just be you know, one little thing is wrong with it, so the whole paper is gone. We can't believe it. And um, and because I think that happens too often, is that people don't think a study is right because X, Y, and Z, or because it wasn't done correctly. There are so many systems in place to make sure we do do, there's the do-do, <laughs> we do do it correctly. Well done. Uh, so that's what I, that's what I would like for people who are not into research to know is that yes, we, there's a huge administrative burden for us as researchers, but it's there for a good reason, um, and that that good reason is also that taxpayers get what they deserve to get out of research, and that there's a lot of oversight on what we do, and there's a lot of um, which a lot of people are cynical about that and and don't want to um, don't want to to believe and believe is not a good word in science, um, but believe that what we do is indeed what we think is best, science wise, not as be what is best for everybody or is best for society, but what is the best science we can do. Um, I think it's so, important to note to our listeners that there are lots of ways to be involved in research. So mm -hmm. you can be involved in research and not spend your life at a computer. You know, someone has to do the intervention. Someone has to write the protocol. Like there are lots of ways to get involved. So if you're looking for an easy out, you're like, oh, I hate administration. Woo, don't have to get involved in research. That's a total cop out. There are lots of things that you can do to support Absolutely. research that don't involve writing for grants or sitting at your desk all day. Yes. If you're a principal yes. investigator, you can't escape that stuff, but there yeah. are lots of other roles. Well, and I'm actually taking a sabbatical this next year so that I can I can get away a little bit from the administrative part, um, not from the administrative part research-wise, but from the administrative part being in a large academic institution. Um, uh, and it's partly my own fault. I get into way too many, I, I can't say no. I get into too many things and say yes to, and that's what happens. But um but yes, you can involve, you can be involved in, in so many different ways in research and volunteering for research projects. And when you, you know, go to the hospital for whatever procedure and they ask you a small little thing, would you, would you, you know, give any tissue that we usually throw away, would you give that to research? If you feel that that's a good thing to do, please do so. Um, and you can always ask more questions about it because people are anxious about will my genetic information now go go all over the internet i don't want that either so i ask those questions too is what will it be used for will it not be used for x y and z so um asking questions is probably the right right thing to do when you want to get involved in research volunteering for research projects is great um, and or if you're really interested in research, yeah, I get it. Be a person who actually does the interventions, be a person who does the analyses. We absolutely need that. And I actually wish I could still do all of it on a daily basis. I had enough time. 
because I loved being in the lab and I loved seeing the results coming out of the machine. I mean, it was, it was kind of, you know, instant satisfaction. And for those of you who can't see Esther, her face is lighting up talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. She waves her hands that are shackled to her desk. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Corey, you have been uncharacteristically without questions. What's going on over there? Um, I have been, uh, I decided early on in this conversation that it was more important for Esther to talk than for me to talk. So um, that's what's been happening. I do, uh, I also wanted to note, Esther, you said you can't say no. And I, I would like to tell you that none of us have that problem. You're all on your own. We're doing this podcast, right? <laughs> Um, I actually kind of wanted to talk about really briefly going back to the, the research research stuff, but about the what you what it was that you saw that changed in the inflammation process. If you can talk about that at all. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we saw in, in the inflammation process, and this is a, a study that was done a, a little while ago, is that um, when we didn't do anything to the animal, so the animal was in its cage, we did not induce atrophy. It was not recovery after atrophy. We wanted to know what if we just give it a bout of massage? What happens to the immune cells? And we mainly looked at neutrophils and macrophages. And we saw that that actually, if you um, if you give a bout of massage, we had a low load and medium load and a high load. That that if you give a bout of massage, you get a um, an effect that is load dependent in the leg that you give the massage to in the sense that we got more macrophages, which is maybe not what you'd expect because sometimes you think of macrophages as things that you don't want to get, but you sometimes do want to get them because they clean up debris and you have to have them. So, and this was done 24 hours after the bite of massage, coming back to Carrie's question earlier, you know, timing and things like that. So. What we saw was that it, in the, the right limb that we massaged, we saw an increase in these macrophages that was load dependent. So the higher the load, the more macrophages we got. Interestingly, and we haven't talked about that yet, but on the contralateral limb that was not massaged, we saw an increase in macrophages, but it was not load dependent. So, and that actually got huh. us later on to looking at the other limb. Right, that got us to wow. That other limb is doing something too, and this is the big. I don't know. We have no clue yet what is responsible for that. No clue. So that is one of the things we I've actually dropped for right now because I don't even know where to start looking for it. Well, I know where to start, but it, it, it's hard. So, so th that was the outcome of that study. Then now later on, we've looked and we see that inflammation-wise and immune cell-wise, we do get when we massage, and this is important, so good question. We see that we get more phagocytic activity in macrophages. So we get more activity uh, of the macrophages that will clean out the debris from the site. Um, whether that happens after injury, we don't know because we don't necessarily injure the animal. But um, but definitely with massage, and it would be interesting to do that, right? Do it, give it, 
do an injury, massage, and see if indeed with massage, we get more phagocytic activity because that would be really uh, helpful. These experiments are expensive to do. They're not cheap. And so we've done only a couple of them. But those are, does that answer your question? Those are kinds of things that change in the immune cells. Uh, yeah, at the research conference, you had these um, absolutely beautiful charts and graphs and like showing with, I really enjoy colors and everything was color coded and it was incredible. And um, I tend to take notes at everything. And I know that something's really good when I just completely stop taking notes and about seven minutes into your presentation, I just stopped taking notes. So um, I don't have them anymore, but. <laughs> so um, um, I think that 75% of what I showed is published. So you can always go to the publications. The last part isn't on the immune cells that I was just talking about. So we're still getting in the, in, into, we still need to publish that. And we have an immunologist who's actually going to be the senior author on that paper because um, I am not an immunologist and she is much better at it than I am. And so she is um, taking that on with my uh, previous uh, graduate student. Esther, thank you so, so much for being with us today. Um, listeners, we, we will link um, some of the work that is published that's been referenced in the show notes so that you can go and check it all out for your own very selves. Um, we, as always, are continuing conversations like this one in the community. You can find us at healwell.org slash community. And um, yeah, get out there, do some research, people. Know that you can't prove things. Know that believe is a dirty word. A dirty, dirty word. Dirty, dirty. I did not say that. <laughs> Carrie did. Though. Carrie did. You didn't have to. It's fine. I just said we like to not use the word believe in science because it doesn't necessarily belong there. Science doesn't care what you believe. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for your time and for sharing your smarts with us. And um, thank you, listeners. As always, you can uh, support us at Patreon, and that is patreon.com slash interdisciplinary, where you get even more exciting bonus footage, videos, craziness, secret squirrel stickers. Uh, so check that out, too. And as always, if you have any questions or feedback or anything for us, please email us at podcast at healwell.org. We'll see you next time. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.